So um, you may have known that earlier this spring, a little kind of indie film came out uh, that got some press. It was called Avengers Endgame. Anybody heard of it? Yes? All right. By a show of hands, this will be interesting. By a show of hands, raise your hand if you haven't seen Avengers Endgame. Okay? That's quite a few of us. I, this, you sh- uh, I'm going to wreck the whole movie for you. Uh, I just know that now. But, but I'm curious. Raise your hand if you haven't seen any one of the Avengers movies. Do you have any? Oh, we do. All right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I did. We saw it. In fact, my family saw it opening weekend. My son and I had been up at the father-child retreat up at Covenant Pines, and so I had very little sleep. And we came back Sunday afternoon just bushed. And my family was like, hey, good news. We're going to go see Avengers. And I was like, yay. Because <laughs> I didn't want to go, like, fight lions and fight crowds and, you know, whatever. But we went because uh, my whole family didn't want to risk going to school or to work on Monday morning and have it mo- spoiled for them, right? Which I'm going to do for like half of you right now in my talk. People hate spoilers. At any rate, it was good. And I think one of the things that this movie did so masterfully was they took all these storylines, not only the previous Avengers movies, but all these kind of spin-off stories, Marvel Universe stories, stories of Ant-Man and Captain Marvel and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and it wove them all together in a remarkable way. All these other stories that somehow came together in one huge climax of the Avengers saga. But the truth is, you really had to see the previous movies to really truly understand the story that Endgame told. I mean, it was a good movie either way, but there was a lot that depended on you knowing the backstories behind the stories, knowing the origin stories of the characters in the movie. And I I think I saw most of those movies. I mean, I I think I've seen a lot of them, but the truth is there's a lot that kind of went over my head too, a lot that I had forgotten. For instance, and I guess this is kind of a spoiler for those of you who care, so block your ears, but there's a scene at the end of Endgame where Captain America, this is the spoiler, Captain America sticks out his hand like this during a battle, and he's about to get smashed. He sticks out his hand, and Thor's hammer flies into his hand. And the theater explodes. I mean, like, screaming and cheering and clapping. And I'm like, what in the world? So I turn to my kids. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, yeah, you don't get it. I'm like, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you'd think that was, like, the whole end of the movie. But the point is, that was apparently a reference to an earlier movie, which apparently I didn't see, or I had seen and I'd forgotten about, or I'd seen and I didn't really care. (laughs) Uh, But the impact of that moment was basically lost on me, because I didn't know the story it was referencing. And there was all kinds of stories like that. I mean, it it was a cool moment, and I'm sure Captain America smashed something really important with his borrowed hammer. But that scene would have been so much more powerful if I'd known the backstory. The movie was filled with moments like that. Moments that were cool on their own, had power on their own, but whose real power relied on you knowing the backstory, the origin stories of the characters. And then there were a few scenes that if you didn't know the origin story, the scene made no sense at all. In fact, more than confusing, you might have been able to just completely misinterpret it. Uh, There's a scene, this is also a spoiler, There's a scene at the end of the movie where Captain America, for those who have seen the movie, remember this, where Captain America appears, but he appears very different. He's sitting on a park bench, and those of you who have seen it know what I'm talking about. If you've seen the movie, then you know that's a great ending. That's a wonderful, happy story. But if you haven't, then you don't get it, best case scenario or worst case scenario. It looks like something horrible has happened to Captain America, right? You have to know the story in order for this to make sense. 
If you don't know the background story, you have to know the origin story to make any sense of that scene. And without it, it'd be easy to misunderstand the scene altogether. There's a place to write this in your notes. I promise this won't all be about Marvel. You can't understand the end of the story unless you know the origins of the characters. It doesn't work to try to understand the Avengers characters by starting at Endgame. That would just be confusing. You have to start at the origin stories, all the stories, if you want to fully and truly understand the end of the stories, because the stories each build on each other, giving new depth and new meaning and new understanding as the story goes on. That's true of the Avengers saga, and it's just as true, and maybe even more true of Scripture, of the Bible. You can't understand the end of the story unless you know the origins of the story. In order to understand the later stories we find in the Bible, we have to get to know the earlier stories and understand how the story ends. We have to be willing to go back and look at the beginning of the story. How did the story start? Who were the characters at the very beginning of the story? Because if we don't, we miss out on so much in these later stories. But I think we also risk misinterpreting and misunderstanding those stories. And perhaps they don't look like good news. So the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis. And Genesis literally means origin story. It's the very first book of the Bible, and, and it's the origin story of all the other stories that follow. Stories about characters like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Hagar and Jacob and Rachel and Joseph from the Old Testament. But also the origin of stories of Joseph and Mary and Peter and Paul and John and Luke and Jesus. This is their origin story, too. And most importantly, it's the origin story of our understanding of God, of Yahweh. Through these origin stories, we get a picture of who God was, who God is, who God will always be, what he's done in history, but also what he's doing in our time. We can't understand what's happening in our time without understanding the origin story. We even get a glimpse of his end game of how the story is going to end when God weaves all of these stories, including our stories, together. I would argue that you can't really understand the New Testament unless you know the origin stories from the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at a snippet, just sort of a preview, a short look at one character, a character who is so central to understanding all of the stories that come later. It's the story of an unknown Mesopotamian farmer, from a land called Ur, the son of Terah. And scripture simply calls him Abram. We're introduced to Abram in, Jap in Genesis chapter 11. And as you turn there, I want to let you know that if you come today and you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to send you home with one. We have stacks of them at the tables in the back. We'd love for you to take one. Genesis chapters 10 and 11 are both filled with these long genealogies of who was the father of who was the father of who was the father of who, the father of who all the way back to Noah. Who your father was, was really important in the ancient Near Eastern world. It was the only way that legacy was determined. It was the way that land and wealth and inheritance were built and passed on to the next generation. So it was really, really huge. These two chapters are dedicated to these long genealogies of who was the father of who was the father of who. And at the end of chapter 11, at the end of one of these long genealogies, we're introduced to Abram. It says this, after Terah was 70 years old, he became the father of Abram, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. The chapter ends by telling us that Terah, at the end of this genealogy, has had three sons. And each of those sons have taken a wife. And then it clarifies who Abram's wife 
was. It says her name was Sarai. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. So Abram had found a wife, but his wife was unable to to be pregnant, which was bad in that culture. I mean, who would be Abram's heir? If there was no heir, then Abram's legacy and the legacy of all who would come before him, those two chapters, all of that would be lost if he did not have a son. This was a big deal. And that's all the backstory we get in chapter 11 for this Abram before we're introduced to him. Basically, he's married, but he has no future. Because in a long, long, long line of genealogies and descendants, Abram will have none. Then chapter 12 starts. And this is sort of the, the real story of Abram. Starting at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All of the families on earth will be blessed through you. So we know from the book of Joshua later in the Old Testament that Abram and his family were not followers and worshipers of Yahweh, of God. But God chooses Abram and tells him to leave his country, his relatives, and more importantly, his father's family. Which for a man in the ancient Near East, meant he was leaving everything, his identity, his security, his inheritance. He was leaving behind any chance of ever becoming the head of household for his family. Leave all of that, God says, and go. And God doesn't even tell him where. He just simply says, to a land I will show you. So, so imagine that. A God you don't worship suddenly shows up at your house and says, I'm gonna, I want you to throw away your whole life and travel to this distant land. I'm not going to tell you where. And then promises to make you into a great nation. Fame, fortune, and a future. And then to cap it all off, he says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is epic storytelling. This is movie stuff. This is save the world superhero language. Right? Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. When he left Haran. So 75-year-old Abram and his uh, nephew Lot and Sarai, his wife, pack up and they leave and they go to this land of Canaan where Abram sets up the tent, skipping down to verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Land, family, inheritance were, were absolutely central to who a person was, to power, to identity, to authority in the ancient Near Eastern world. And Abram had just left all of those things behind to follow God. But now God is promising to restore all of those things tenfold to Abram because he had obeyed, because he had trusted, because he had believed, and because he had gone. And then the next couple of chapters, the rest of 12 and 13 and 14, are spent kind of detailing these adventures and misadventures of Abram and Lot and Sarai. There's a famine in Canaan, so they have to flee and go to Egypt. But when they get there, Abram realizes, my wife is kind of hot. <laughs> and I'm afraid that the guys are going to kill me to get my wife. And so he convinces her to tell everyone that she's his sister, nice husband, and then ends up giving her to Pharaoh to be part of his harem, nice husband, <laughs> right? Right? 
And then Lot and Abraham are splitting up, and then Lot, Abraham has to rescue Lot, and there's a chase scene and a battle and a fight, and it's epic. And we're going to get into some of those stories later this summer. But in chapter 15, I want to look at today, this is really the, the real story I want to highlight today. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. So it doesn't tell us how long it's been. It, it simply says sometime later. But a lot has happened to Abram and Lot. They are now both very wealthy men, and their households have expanded enormously. Next verse. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. I think it's easy to read bitterness or complaint or anger into that question, and maybe there was some of that, but I also think it's a genuine question. Like, God, you've made me these promises. You promised to make me into a great nation. You said you'd give this land to my descendants, but I have none. Abram is here appealing to the law of the land. According to the ancient code of Hammurabi, or one of the other ancient laws in that region, if a man had no male heir to inherit his wealth, then he had two options. He could either adopt one of his male slaves and, and make him, name him heir, or he could try to have an heir of his own with one of his slave girls. And here, Abram appears to be appealing to that first option, but it's not a great option because, frankly, he's taking all of this wealth, all of this promise, all of this inheritance, and he's transferring it to someone else's family line. Many of you remember that later, Sarai will suggest he choose option two, right? Then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own, and, you, and he will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? There's a tension that exists there between verses 6 and 8. Verse 6 tells us that Abram believed, and God counted him as righteous because of his belief. But here, two verses later, he's saying, but how can I be sure? It's easy to imagine that God's response would be like, seriously? <laughs> like, after all I've done, all I've done to demonstrate, just believe, have faith. But he doesn't. Let's look at how God responds. Instead of rebuking or even really assuring Abram of anything, he responds in a way that I think we would find peculiar as modern readers who don't necessarily know this story. Listen to the very next passage. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. What? <laughs> like, those of you who know the story, this makes sense, but that doesn't make any sense, Right? I mean, those of you who know this passage know what's going to become next because you've heard the story. But apparently Abram also knew what was coming next, but not because God gave him any instruction on what to do with these animals. Note that he doesn't. Nowhere in this passage does God tell him what to do with these animals. 
Abram knows. How? Well, again, we know from other ancient Mesopotamian texts from the same time period that what we are about to see Abram do would have been absolutely standard practice for two parties who were entering into like a legal agreement that both parties would keep their end of the deal, would keep their end of the promise in the deal. They didn't call up lawyers and have them draft up papers to sign. Lawyers come much later in the biblical history. (laughs) Instead, both parties entered in what's called a covenant, which is the most solemn, the most serious, the most binding, the most intimate contract known in the ancient world. Covenants are not entered into lightly. A covenant was a pledge to the death. A covenant was cut in blood. In this agrarian society where almost nothing was more precious to these farmers than their livestock, livestock were used as part of this covenant ceremony because nothing else could signify the gravity and the intensity of this commitment. And once a covenant was sealed, the two parties were bound together for life. This is true throughout the ancient world. Therefore, the two parties sealed their covenant with one another by engaging in a covenant ceremony where a number of ceremonial animals were brought in and dissected and laid out with each half on each side forming a pathway that both parties could walk down this pathway called the walk into death. And it was brutal and costly and graphic. This wasn't a Bible thing. There was no Bible yet. Right? This was the law of the land at the time. And in walking down this corridor of death, the parties both agreed to the terms of the promise. But then they also agreed to a curse. A curse upon themselves if either party chose to fail to fulfill the terms of the promise. One commentary said it this way. By doing so, the two parties were stating, if I fail to fulfill my commitment to this covenant, may I suffer the same fate as this animal. So with that in mind, let's read what comes next, starting again in verse 9. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid out the halves side by side. This ceremony isn't something that God created or God invented or implemented. God was using the established system, the law of the land, a law that any farmer would have understood at the time. God used this graphic, strong, costly means of the day to demonstrate that he was all in in his covenant to Abram. God was all in as long as he lived, which is eternal. Let's keep reading. Because while this covenant would have looked very familiar to a Mesopotamian farmer, there's also some striking differences that we see when we look at this telling of this story. Let's skip down to verse 17. So again, to set the stage, God has established a covenant with Abram, and now both parties are supposed to walk down this corridor of death. But watch. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. The smoking pot and the flaming torch passed between the halves. And this is significant for a number of reasons. The flaming torch in Mesopotamian society would have represented or was used in their purification rituals, these pagan rituals in which they could experience purification. And when combined with the smoking pot, they would represent specific deities of the region. 
And so God is using these symbols that are so familiar to him, that would represent purification, would have represented local, regional deities. But he's using these pagan symbols to say, I am that deity. I am the God who provides. I am the true God. I am the God who purifies. I am the God who brought you here and I'm making this covenant with you. And notice from that passage who doesn't walk into the corridor of death. Abram. Right? At no point. Typically, both parties walked and both parties had skin in the game. But here, Yahweh alone is depicted, is pictured as passing between the halves. God's promise to Abram is one-sided. It's a covenant to Abram, a promise to Abram, and he is the only one putting skin in the game. Victor Hamilton, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, says it this way. Nothing, however, in this chapter is imposed on Abram. He is free from any obligation. The only imposition or obligation that Yahweh lays upon anybody is upon himself. And that is the obligation to implement his promise of descendants and especially of land to Abram and to his descendants. God walked the line alone. God did what only God could do for Abram. Let's continue the story. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day. And said, I have given this land to your descendants. All the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. The land now occupied by the Kenites and Kenizzites and Kadmonites and lots of other ites. God chose to present himself this way. By choosing this obscure, unknown farmer who had no potential who had no heir, who had no descendants, and his even more obscure wife. And then he says, through you, I'm going to bring blessing and purification and honor to all the people of earth one day. Through you and through your descendants, the world will come to know and understand my plan for them. They will come to know and see my heart for them. God is making this one-sided covenant to Abraham. This is not a bilateral covenant between two equal parties. This is a grant. This is a covenant of grace, not works. God is extending grace and granting blessing of his own accord, not because of anything that Abram had done. He brought nothing to the game. And therefore, nothing Abram or his descendants could do would nullify or could nullify what God alone had accomplished by walking that line alone. It was a covenant that wasn't so much about what we should do, but about what God had already done. Not so much about who we should be, but who God already was and is and will be. A covenant-keeping God who is always true to his promises. That's a place to write this down. God is a covenant-keeping God. Even when we aren't covenant-keeping followers. He is love even when we don't. He is true even when we are false. He is hope when we are hopeless. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Right here in the very first book of the Bible, the gospel is already present and active and at work. This is the origin story of the people of God. We have to know this story to know ourselves as the people of God. Jack Hayford writes this. 
This is the foundation of Israel's eternal relationship with God. All other Bible promises are based on this covenant God made with Abraham. Without understanding this origin story, we can't fully understand any of the stories that come next, the stories of Genesis, but the stories of the whole Bible. Without understanding this story, we can't possibly make any sense of the story of Moses. In Exodus, the very next book in the Bible, Moses comes and he rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel, Abram's promised descendants that he rescues out of slavery and he brings back to this promised land and he establishes the law. We need to know this story in order to make any sense of the law which required sacrificing the very same animals that Abram had brought before God in this first story. We need to know this story to make any sense of of Moses building an altar just like Abram had and sacrificing these animals before God and saying to these descendants of Abram, look, this blood confirms the covenant that the Lord has made with you. This blood confirms that blood. This blood confirms that covenant. The covenant of a covenant-keeping God. Live in remembrance of the covenant. Live in remembrance of the covenant-keeping God. We need to know the story of Abram to make any sense, to to fully understand this, this Jeremiah 31, where God says, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. We need to know this story to fully understand the more than 270 times the word covenant appears in the Old Testament. That's significant. We need to know this story to understand all the stories of the Old Testament. We need to know this story in order to fully understand the New Testament stories, stories that were built on these earlier stories. It's like Avengers. We can't understand why Thor is now fat unless we've seen Infinity Wars. Half you get that joke. (laughs) We need to know the stories of Genesis to understand the stories of Jesus. We need to know the story of Abram to fully understand the words of Jesus. Words like the words that he spoke on one of the last nights that he was on earth doing ministry with his disciples. And they were gathered in an upper room. And he was with them eating a meal. And during the meal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Not the body of animals severed and torn. This is my body. Willingly given and broken for you. I will make the walk into death. I will again walk where you cannot. I will walk that path alone. This is once again doing what only God can do, saying, I am the God who provides and protects. I am the God who gives you hope and a future. I am that God who purifies you and makes you righteous and calls you righteous. That is my covenant to you. And during that same meal, Jesus lifted a cup of wine, and we need to know Abram's story to understand these words that have become so familiar to those of us who have heard them spoken so many times during Holy Communion. These words that that resonate through Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jesus lifted the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Jesus is saying, this is a whole new covenant between Yahweh and his people. And I confirm this covenant, not with the blood of animals, but with my own blood. 
This is my body. This is my blood. Willingly given to the pagan legal systems and to the broken religious systems of this day so that I can demonstrate my heart for my people. Jesus here, like God had done earlier, uses the strongest, most graphic, most costly means of the day to demonstrate that he was all in. He was still all in as long as he lived, which is eternal. Without understanding the Abram story, we can't understand the Jesus story. It's the very foundation of our faith. It is our origin story, our backstory. Do we know our origin stories? And how each of them builds on the next. I think it's safe to say that many of us in the room, maybe particularly our kids, probably know more about the origin stories of Thor or Spider-Man or Captain America than they know about the origin stories of their faith. Do we? It's why we invite you this summer to join us as we dive in and unpack these origin stories, the characters behind the stories that we see played out through the rest of Genesis, but that we will see played out through the rest of the book, that we'll see played out even in this world today. I would argue that you can't make sense of the world today without knowing these stories. We live so separated from this world, but it is one world and one history, and we are a part of it. We need to know that part to understand this part. And the part that is to come or else we could easily misinterpret that it's not good news. This is a story that needs to be told. We invite you to bring your kids so that they can learn these stories. This is their story too. And it needs to be passed to the next generation of Abram's descendants. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for these stories, stories of men and women who've gone before us and to whom you've revealed yourself so that they, and in turn we, might know your heart, your desires, your hope in the midst of this world. Father, in an age where we're so consumed with our own stories, or celebrity stories, or Marvel Universe stories, give us a longing to know your story, the truest of stories, the stories that have shaped the people of God in this world, the stories that have shaped the history of this world. And then draw us into that story so that we might see our part in becoming that next generation of your followers, the next generation of descendants. And even invite others into experiencing you in that way. Spirit, move in us. Give us that desire. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.